Let's get into God's word. Ezekiel was not a reggae singer. As far as we know. Chapter 42. By the way, uh, people I know who are watching tonight are Abigail Reese, Pat Mundy, and Mike Brewer. So shout outs to those guys online. As background to our study tonight, I'd like to read a September 9, 2010 article. Uh, This one uh, is from an Atlanta newspaper, and it's titled, The Cohen Gene, Key to a Prophetic Priesthood. It's uh, sort of a long uh, section, but you'll understand it. It's pretty exciting. A few years ago, uh, Dr. Carl Skorecki, a nephrologist and researcher at the University of Toronto and Israel's Rambam Technion Medical Center, had an interesting thought. He speculated that the Kohanim, a family line that descends from Aaron, the brother of Moses, according to Jewish tradition, might be genetically distinct from other Jews and Gentiles. Skorecki reasoned that if the Kohanim, also called the Kohens, were descended from one man, Aaron, as the Bible asserts, then they would have a common genetic marker. The Kohens are mentioned in the Bible as far back as 2 Kings 17. In fact, the term Kohanim often seems used interchangeably with the word priest in Jewish sources. Fathers pass Y chromosomes to their sons. The Y chromosome does accumulate mutations, but is otherwise the same as a man's ancient male ancestors. These combinations of mutations are known as haplotypes, all stuff you knew already. The study showed that over 98% of Cohen Jews possessed a particular gene marker. Non-Cohen Jews possessed the marker in significantly lower percentages. A second study confirmed the results and showed that over 91% of Cohens possessed six chromosomal, chromosomal markers, now known as the Cohen modal haplotype, or the CMH. The CMH is common in both Ashkenazi and Sephardic Jews, and indicates a common ancestor for both European and Mediterranean Jews. By counting the mutations in the Y chromosome, researchers calculate that the Cohen line goes back approximately 106 generations, roughly 3,300 years, the approximate time of the exodus from Egypt. Further, the research shows that the Levites, the tribe from which Aaron came, are not as genetically distinct as the Cohen's. Then in the second part of the two-part article, the author stated the following. He said, the preservation of this Cohen line matters for a couple of reasons. First, it offers support for the Bible's version of Jewish history. The fact that the Cohens have preserved their family line since the days of Aaron speaks to the importance placed on preserving the priestly line. Second, it makes a feasible, or rather, it makes feasible a fulfillment of biblical prophecy that a new temple will be built. Now, this is really big news on the prophetic front, this genetic research. Jews can know scientifically who are the priests that have the biblical right and mandate to serve in a tribulation temple once it is reestablished. And it's very important because uh, only, uh, you know, only the tribe of Levi can serve and only the sons of Aaron, the descendants of Aaron within that tribe can serve as priests. And so, uh, very important. I remember years ago, 
when I was first a Christian studying Bible prophecy and they were saying, well, how, how are they going to know who the Levites are and who the, uh, who, you know, they didn't call them Cohen's back then, but who the uh, sons of Aaron are. And uh, uh, science finally caught up to God. And, uh, of course, God knew. The answer back then was, well, God knows and he'll make it clear. But uh, now uh, we do know. And, and it's just as the Bible said, starts back around the time of the Exodus, uh, 3,300 years ago. So, pretty fascinating stuff. Now, our text tonight is going to look past the tribulation temple to the millennial temple, and it's going to talk about the priests that serve there. In chapter 42, the Lord described to Israel, uh, Ezekiel rather the chambers the priests will utilize. Uh, so, verse 1. Then he brought me out into the outer court by the way toward the north, and he brought me into the chamber which was opposite the separating courtyard and which was opposite the building toward the north. Facing the length, which was 100 cubits, the width was 50 cubits, was the north door. Opposite the inner court of 20 cubits and opposite the pavement of the outer court was gallery against gallery in three stories. In front of the chambers toward the inside was a walk 10 cubits wide at a distance of one cubit and their doors faced north. Now the upper chambers were shorter because the galleries took away space from them more than from the lower and middle stories of the building. For they were in three stories and did not have pillars like the pillars of the courts. Therefore, the upper level was shortened more than the lower and middle levels from the ground up. Uh, And a wall which was outside ran parallel to the chambers at the front of the chambers toward the outer court. Its length was 50 cubits. The length of the chambers toward the outer court was 50 cubits, whereas that facing the temple was 100 cubits. And the lower chambers was the entrance of the east side as one goes into them from the outer court. Also, there were chambers in the thickness of the wall of the court toward the east, opposite the separating courtyard and opposite the building. There was a walk in front of them also, and their appearance was like the chambers, which were toward the north. They were as long and as wide as the others, and all their exits and entrances were according to plan. And corresponding to the doors of the chambers that were facing south, as one enters them, there was a door in front of the walk, the way directly in front of the wall toward the east. Uh, Now, having read those 12 verses, I have no idea what that looks like. Uh, Some of you, uh, you know, you might have a mind like that. You know, some people have mathematical minds. You, uh, you could count change back to somebody if you had to. If, if you're, uh, I have a hard time with that. Whenever we're in the store and you know, there's change to be given, I think we should do it. Who thinks we should just do away with change and just round up or down? I, I'm especially the penny. But anyway, my wife will always say, oh, give them a penny and then they won't have to give you. And I'm like, how do you calculate that? <laughs> I, I really, I can't understand it. But uh, anyway... Uh, I don't really understand this, but, but uh, there are those who do. And uh, what we're seeing is certain chambers for the priests. In Ezekiel chapter 40, we saw dwelling places for the priests during their administration of the service in the temple. Uh, these are for a different purpose that's going to be stated in verses 13 and 14. And so let's read that. Then he said to me, the north chambers and the south chambers, which are opposite the separating courtyard, are the holy chambers where the priests who approach the Lord shall eat the most holy offerings. There they shall lay the most holy offerings, the grain offering, the sin offering, and the trespass offering, for the place is holy. When the priests enter them, they shall not go out of the holy chamber into the outer court, but there they shall leave their garments in which they minister, for they are holy. 
They shall put on other garments, then they may approach that which is for the people. Now, as you know, in the Old Testament, the priest was an intermediary between God and man. The worshiper would bring his sacrifice only as far as the brazen altar. The priest took it from there, bringing it into the holy place. It represented, the whole situation represented that a separation exists between sinful man and a holy God. Now, the parts of the offering not consumed by the Lord were for the priest to consume. These chambers will be where they partake or consume those meals. And these chambers will also serve as, we might call them closets, for the garments the priests wear when serving. These garments are different than the Old Testament garments and they're going to be described for us later on in the book of Ezekiel. We, we've got more temple uh, all the way through chapter 48. God is really excited about describing to Ezekiel this temple. And we, uh, I keep referring to this individual who's taking Ezekiel on a tour as the Lord because as we saw last week, he alone went into the Holy of Holies, which is a place that only God uh, goes into. And so some commentators say it's just a, a, an angel, uh, but it, it seems to be an Old Testament appearance of the Lord. Now, it seems every week you get into a situation where you might ask a question about why there's a millennial temple with sacrifices and a priesthood. I mean, as we're talking about these priests, after all, wasn't the veil in the first century temple torn in two by God when Jesus died on the cross to signify that the way into God's presence was open to all who trusted in Christ? Why then would the Lord reinstate a priesthood of any kind? Well, Thomas Ice is a good guy if you ever run across his stuff uh, in print or on the Internet. He's a Bible teacher and scholar we trust. He has this perspective on the Millennial Temple and its rites and rituals. And I quote, he says, Critics of future Millennial sacrifices seem to assume that all sacrifices past and future depict Christ's final sacrifice for sin. They do not. There were various purposes for sacrifice in the Bible. Many of the sacrifices under the Mosaic system were purification rituals. The purpose for a temple throughout Scripture has been to establish a location upon the earth which is under the curse of sin for the presence of God that reveals through its ritual God's great holiness. God's plan for Israel includes a relation to them through a temple since He wants to dwell in the midst of His people. Currently, the church is God's spiritual temple made up of living stones, We'll talk more about that in a moment. The millennium will return history to a time when Israel will be God's mediatory people, but will also continue to be a time in which sin will be present upon the earth. Thus, God will include a new temple, a new priesthood, a new law, etc. at this future time because He will be present in Israel, but still desires to teach that holiness is required to approach Him. This is contrasted with the fact that no temple will exist in eternity because God and the Lamb are the temple since there will be no sin in heaven, thus no need for ritual cleansing. And so uh, one of the things that we remember when we're talking about this temple in the, in, uh, existing on the earth is that the earth is under a curse. The earth, uh, even the millennial earth that Jesus is restoring, it is not the recreated earth, it is not the new heaven and the new earth. It's still this earth, 
under the curse of sin. And when God dwells among his people on the earth, he does it in a temple so that people can understand that there is a separation between a holy God and sinful mankind. So the rites and rituals and uh, purification things of the temple serve that purpose. So there's really no contradiction to the cross of Jesus Christ by the existence of a future temple on the earth. There will still be billions of people who are born sinners who will need to see to understand that God is holy and that they are separated from Him. The millennial temple and its priesthood will illustrate separation and the need for salvation. And so it will be a visual representation that men are separated from a thrice holy God and need a Savior. And so there's no contradiction whatsoever. We looked at this several weeks ago, but once you get over thinking that the sacrifices of the temple save you, uh, then all of this makes perfect sense. Those sacrifices never saved anyone. People have always been saved the same way. And how is that? God, they believe God and He justifies them. They're saved by grace through faith in the work of the Messiah. Uh, and so uh, you, you didn't get saved and stay saved by bringing lamb after lamb. Those were all uh, symbolic sacrifices. And so there's really no problem with there being a millennial temple or a priesthood uh, remember, Jesus will be on the earth ruling and reigning. Uh, he'll be accessible, but in terms of communicating the need for the gospel, uh, the temple exists to show that separation. You know, the gospel will need to be preached in the millennium. Even with Jesus on the earth, you and I will be here in glorified physical bodies, just like the body Jesus had after his resurrection. Uh, and human beings who are in bodies like ours now will see all of that, and they'll see the conditions on the earth and they'll still reject salvation. They'll still rebel against Christ because the heart of man is evil. One of the small things that teaches us is that the problem we have is not the environment. You know, there's always in philosophy and in literature, there's always a conflict between nature and nurture. What, what's the problem with the world? Is it the way people were raised? Is there something about them? Or is it the environment? So if we could have a perfect environment... Would we have perfect people? And the answer to that, of course, is no. And we'll see it most clearly uh, when Jesus is ruling and reigning on the earth. It'll be as perfect as possible. And at the end of it, when the devil is released from uh, his prison in the Abuso, millions upon millions of people will follow him and rebel against the rule of Christ. And so uh, the temple uh, giving uh, a sense of what needs to happen in the heart of man. Verses 15 through 20 move outside to give us the external dimensions of the project. Verse 15, now when he had finished measuring the inner temple, he brought me out through the gateway that faces toward the east and measured it all around. He measured the east side with the measuring rod, 500 rods by the measuring rod all around. He measured the north side, 500 rods by the measuring rod all around. He measured the south side, 500 rods by the measuring rod, came across uh, to the west side and measured 500 rods by the measuring rod. He measured it on the four sides. It had a wall all around, 500 cubits long and 500 wide to separate the holy areas from the common. Um, just as a note, it took a long time to measure this thing out, really. You know, you're talking about cubits, which are like 18 inches. And so, you know, the Lord and, and a rod is... Uh, what did I say? It's about 12 feet or something like that. Anyway, I mean, so you're measuring this 12 feet at a time. Uh, it's it's kind of like, you ever step things out? I do that sometimes, you know, and then I think, 
What I, it doesn't prove anything. I don't know how big my feet are, you know, or the particular shoes I have on. So you, then you go to Orchard and say, well, it's, uh, it's uh, six converse long, you know. I hate buying stuff. You guys, you men, you're, you're those kind of men that know things. You know, you know, you know, male threads and female threads and you know what to call things and stuff. I, I, and I need this thing that, you know, and it attaches and it's like, uh, you know, it's a, grama, a grommet, you know. And sometimes I look stuff up on the Internet and I get the actual name and then, yeah, that's not the name anybody uses, you know. <laughs> that's like some British name that people use, you know, somewhere else. But uh, anyway, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't know why I got off on that. It's just my inadequacies. Uh, so the total area occupied by this temple, I'm told, 765,625 square feet. So that's a lot of converse steps right there. It's, uh, I'm told it's enough square feet to fit 13 football fields. Uh, so this is a huge, not the temple itself. The, when we talk about the temple or the tabernacle, we're really talking about just a very small room uh, two rooms, actually, where uh, all this stuff takes place. All the rest of it is the temple complex, everything that's built up around it. And we're talking about a huge, huge area here. Now, our thrice holy God was present on earth in former times in the tabernacle and later the temple. Its rites and rituals saved no one. People were saved when believing in God, they were justified by Him. The temple simply but powerfully demonstrated that mankind is separated from God by sin and in need of salvation. Jesus Christ will be literally and physically present on the earth in the millennium. The temple with its rites and rituals will save no one. People will be saved when they believe God and are justified by Him. The millennial temple will simply but powerfully demonstrate that mankind is still separated from God by sin and in need of salvation. Meantime... Something incredible, something unheard of in the Old Testament is taking place. The church, born-again Christians comprising the church, is a mystery, we're told, in the New Testament. A mystery is something formerly concealed which is now revealed. And so the, the church didn't exist in the Old Testament and it wasn't really spoken of in the Old Testament. It's kind of comical sometimes you read some of the uh, old commentators and they talk about the church in the Old Testament. And Jesus said the church is a mystery. Paul said the church is a mystery. It's something brand new. Uh, and... Uh, now God says His temple... See, God wants to dwell in a temple when He's on the earth because He's holy and the earth is under the curse of sin. And so His temple is within us individually now as Christians and within us corporately when we gather together as the church. Individually, we read in 1 Corinthians 6.19, Don't you know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, you are not your own. Uh, this is one reason why I believe that, uh, you know, scholars debate this, but I believe that in the Old Testament there were individuals who were permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but the, the norm was for people to just have the Holy Spirit come upon them for periods of time. They were saved, but they didn't have the indwelling, moment-by-moment, moment, permanent presence of the Holy Spirit. In their lives, you'll see when we studied in the life of David, you see that Saul, God took his spirit from Saul. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, in the New Testament, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit 
is something new and powerful and fresh and, and mysterious to the Old Testament saints. Uh, and, and we are the temple of the Spirit. And then corporately, earlier in 1 Corinthians 3.16, says, don't you know that you, and this is in the plural, are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you as Paul is speaking to the church. And so individual Christians, when you become a Christian, you're born again. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in you. And when we gather together, obviously, the Spirit is there, present in our midst. Probably the New Testament passage that most amplifies our role as and in the current temples on earth is 1 Peter 2, 5 through 10. Let me read that to you. Peter is writing, uh, and you remember Peter is the one who had the initial you know, revelation from God uh, you know, that, that Jesus uh, was... Uh, you know, who he was, and, and Jesus said, hey, you know, on this rock I will build my church. And so he says in verse 5, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore it is also contained in the scripture, behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore to you who believe he is precious, to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. But you are a chosen generation, royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. And the kind of stones Peter was talking about would be quarried from a rock pit. Every person who receives Jesus Christ as Savior is, in a sense, quarried from the rock pit of sin. You are then mortared into place uh, by God's grace. The thing that strikes me is that we are stones and not bricks or boards. Bricks and boards are manufactured to exact specifications. Likewise, uh, you would order wood in its pre-manufactured sizes. Stones are not like that. They're all different shapes and sizes. They're all very individual. You as a living stone are individual to God and unique. You know, we talk about this in a lot of different ways, but you know, people, they, they try to be somebody they're not or some, do something they're not supposed to be. Everybody wants to you know, kind of fit into a cookie-cutter mold, it seems, and God says, no, I'm not building you as, as a brick or as a board. Uh, you're a stone of a particular size and weight and shape, and I'm putting you together uh, the way I want you to be. It requires a great deal of skill to form and shape stones into a building. And these are living stones, indicating that their shape is constantly changing. Living stones make for an interesting building. A living stone is never quite finished. Jesus goes on chiseling and grinding and buffing and smoothing you. All the while you are mortared with other living stones. Together by His amazing skill, we are being built up into a spiritual house. Now this reference to the rejected stone had a long tradition among the Jews. They recalled that when Solomon built his temple, all the masonry work was performed at a distance from the site so that the sound of hammers and axes and other tools was not heard at the site. Early in the construction, a huge stone was delivered from the quarry. Considerable work had been done upon it, but no one could identify where in the building it belonged. 
It was put aside as a misfit and lay on site unrecognized and useless. When the building began to take shape and its capstone was called for, someone remembered this rejected stone, which when placed in the gap was the perfect fit. Now the memory of this incident was put into Psalm 118, and that's what Peter quotes here. When Jesus was on the earth, he applied this scripture directly to himself. Peter and Paul both picked up on this imagery. The chief cornerstone of the earthly temple was a type of Jesus who would be the foundation of God's spiritual temple, the church. Rejected by the Jews, uh, nevertheless, he was the foundation of the church. Now, the temple had and will have priests who offered sacrifices on behalf of the people. You and I today are the priesthood, and we offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What can you and I offer to God as a sacrifice? Well, according to Romans 12, 1 and 2, you can offer your body as a living sacrifice. Uh, So you're not really a volunteer in the church. You're a servant offering yourself as a sacrifice. According to Hebrews 13, 15, you can offer the praise of your lips. Uh, The next verse, 13.16 in Hebrews, says you can offer good works that you do for others as a sacrifice to God. And according to Philippians chapter 4, you can offer your money and other material possessions as a sacrifice. Now, Israel was and remains God's chosen nation. He's not through with the physical descendants of Abraham. But God has currently chosen a new generation of people. It is all those who receive Jesus as their Savior, whether they're Jew or Gentile. Jesus called this new generation the church. It is the spiritual house which is being built on the foundation of himself as the chief cornerstone. The church is further described here as a royal priesthood and a holy nation. These words are a direct quote from Exodus 19. This was to be Israel's earthly destiny and it will be again. For now, in these last days, the church has taken Israel's place as priests in the spiritual house he is building on the earth. We're said to be his own special people. Uh, You're his priests and people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we're the ones who are charged with the task of sharing Christ with unbelievers. Rather than a drudgery, it's said to be a delight because we proclaim the praises of Jesus Christ. Do people get from your life that God is praiseworthy? Uh, that that's the idea. There should be a, a an infectious, contagious joy about the Christian life. Uh, there are many, many things that you can't do, I guess. Uh, but Christianity isn't about the list of things that you can't do. Uh, it, it's uh, about loving God more so that other things pale in in significance. Uh, and, and so, you know, but a lot of times Christianity has kind of the moniker of, of being, a, a, you know, a rules-oriented thing. And, and, and we can come across as being sour or even, uh, you know, uh, bitter about the fact that we can't do certain things. It's not that we can't do certain things, that we don't want to do them. Because we have something better, we know someone better. And God is praiseworthy. Anybody who's been saved later in their life, saved uh, from something, uh, you understand what I'm talking about because, uh, you know, you were lost and dying and, and uh, you, you were going down for the last time and the Lord reached down and He saved you. He pulled you out of those things that other people seem to be drawn to and think are so much fun and are so exciting and, and it was nothing to turn your back on uh, the world. 
Uh, you were happy to do it uh, because of what the Lord had done in your life and how he had delivered you. And so it's praiseworthy. He says here, you were once in darkness but are now walking in his light. person walking in the dark is tentative. They get lost easily. They stumble and fall. Your relationship with God has brought you into the light of his revelation about his plan and purpose for all things, including your life and your future. You can turn on light wherever you find yourself. That's the idea. Now that you're walking with God, you're walking in the light. And so though you may not know the exact you know, address of where you're going to live and things like that, you can, apply, you can have God's light and wisdom in every situation of your life. Whatever decision that you need to make, you can bring to the Lord uh, and seek His wisdom. And His wisdom will reveal itself as pure and peaceable. And you'll be led by Him. The word for proclaim will end on this. It could be translated advertise. You and I are advertisements for God. Now, we don't like ads, do we? The truth is, we like some ads. I know, you know, when you're watching TV or you're doing something, you know, it's like, oh man, there's so many ads, but... I love the Geico ads. I mean, I've never known one company that had more successful ads, not just ads, but ad campaigns. They have about five different ad campaigns that people would die for. Uh, you know, and every one of them, whether it's the gecko or the caveman or the guy that comes out and says, you know, that and, and you know, it's worth two in the bush, you know, and stuff and all that. And, and there's, there's, there's a million of them. There's the little eyes on the money. You know, it's fantastic. And then there's a bunch of stupid ads. You want to be a Geico ad for Jesus. You want, to, you want to be that. You want to be something. But seriously, God says, you're my advertisements. You know, when people are driving, they see billboards or, you know, magazine ads or print ads or whatever and stuff. You are God's advertisement. And people look at you and they get an idea of who God is and what God's life like based on what he's done and is doing in your life. Uh, and so let's be, you know, let's be the best advertisements that we can possibly be. Uh, we're the church. God, this is the temple of God right here. God dwells in the midst of people like us and in us individually. That's how he hangs in this sinful world, uh, wanting to reach men with the knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen?